Hello, everyone. Welcome to This Must Be the Place, the Building Science Podcast. I'm your host, Shauna Henderson. Each episode is a deep conversation with a carefully chosen peer about not just houses, but place. Yeah, of course we talk about houses and retrofits, but we also want to change the industry for the better, forever. Energy poverty, community engagement, industry disruption, societal responsibility, and climate change. It's all here and so much more. Welcome back, everyone. Your host, Shauna, here. Just a note that I'm on the road and not in my usual recording space, so apologies for any untoward sounds and noises in the background, like the neighbor's gardening efforts. My guest today is Toby Smith, Project Manager at Building Knowledge Canada. Having spent his entire career in the energy efficiency sector, he's incredibly knowledgeable and has helped my company, Blue House Energy, develop material for our courses. He joins me today from Ontario. Welcome, Toby. Thanks for joining me. How are you? I'm good, Jana. Hi. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, this is exciting. We we spend a lot of time chatting on buses going to and from conferences. Actually, just yeah. prior to COVID hitting, that was a great conversation. Um, so I want to hear more. I know that okay. uh, you've been training energy advisors for 10 years. But I understand yeah. that you initially volunteered for the role because no one else wanted to do it. Like, let's talk about that for a bit. That's crazy. Yeah, it was kind of a pivotal moment in my career, I think, because it and it, it taught me a lot. And I, I try to pass that on whenever I'm acting as a mentor to new energy advisors is, um, you know, look, just take on those opportunities. I was. Um, at the time, I was an, had been an energy advisor for maybe two years at the most. And so there was other people uh, much more experienced than I at the time, some, some well-known energy advisors, uh, Ross Elliott and mm-hmm. Jonathan Hamm uh, worked for the company. But, you know, they had their, sorry, worked for the, uh, was a nonprofit actually. You know, I think they had their businesses going and, and you know, everything was going smoothly for them. Uh, so they weren't interested in it, but I was a new, fairly new graduate out of university and, you know, saw that opportunity and said, yeah, why not? And so I cool. think that's a, it's a good lesson to, cause that kind of moved me along the way and, um, you know, led to other opportunities with other companies and it's been, uh, it's been very beneficial to me and I really enjoy it as well. Nice. So how long have you been with Building Knowledge Canada? Yeah, I'm with Building Knowledge in uh, where our office is in Cambridge, Ontario. We're sort of about half virtual now um, mm-hmm. uh, because of COVID and things like that. Uh, I have been there for coming up on four years. Well, tell me more about about your your training time and and uh, and you know okay. you've been doing a lot of uh, of you you've done lots of face to face training. And then we have also we we've licensed your content for for some of our training. Tell me more about what you do with with, with face to face and and what your your thoughts are on on where training is going to go for energy okay. advisors now. Yeah, I mean I've definitely noticed a change when when I got started as a trainer back in uh, 
whenever that was, 2005 or something like that, with Enviro Center, it, it was pretty much prescribed by Enercan. They had uh, slides you had to use, and, um, you know, it was classroom-based. There was always an on-site component, so you were going on-site with trainees and, and running through an, uh, the energy assessment process for existing homes. But it was pretty much limited to that. And then, you know, over the years, I, I'd taken that material and, and changed it to suit myself better and, and suit my, suit the trainees better, really. Um, at, and then at a couple points, I guess, actually, I think I've done it twice now, <laughs> uh, developed my own materials. When, mm-hmm. when, uh, Intercan switched from the previous version to their new version, uh, 15, you know, they, they got out of the training business, so to speak, mm-hmm. and did not provide materials. They just said, here's the manuals, here's the uh, competency profiles. If you want to train people, go to it. Just do, yeah, develop your own materials kind of thing. So at that point, I was with another SO. Uh, and so, you know, it was a mad scramble to develop new training materials, basically, new procedures and a lot of it could Mm -hmm. be reused but and so taught some classes with them using that material and at the same time was noticing that so that service organization um is across canada so we had eas you know all over the country basically and it did you know in the classroom didn't really work it was Mm -hmm. you know working less and less basically it started off like that maybe people would fly in but then you know, it just didn't make sense anymore. Um, they would try to do more things locally or whatever. So we did start to switch to more at that time. So that would have been in um, early 2010s, I guess. There, we didn't have the virtual setups that we have now. You know, mm-hmm. no, one, yeah. no one did virtual meetings, anything like that. So, yeah, we were we were just on the cutting edge of that because we were we were doing that's when we started doing the uh, the on demand training, and mm-hmm. and we've been remote for the whole the whole existence of Blue House Synergy, um, but we started out using um, you know uh, the like Basecamp 101 <laughs> version 0.1. Um, and we we explored a bunch of things, but they were really really kludgy and janky and whatever word you want to use for not quite ready for market. Um, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I wasn't even you know that company. We weren't thinking to that. We didn't develop anything at that level. Mm-hmm. So it was, um, but we started to do more you know on the on the phone kind of work. So. They might have, we would try to arrange an experienced EA or a trainer in their region to go with them on site. And, you know, I would collect notes from that person and then talk to the person, talk to the trainee, uh, as well as we did a lot of kind of review stuff. So, you know, they'd send their files in and then we'd spend an hour or two on the phone uh, looking at that or doing um, a demonstration of Hot 2000 or reviewing their, their file. I guess, yeah, I guess that's around then. We did start to use some kind of screen sharing. Um, methods wasn't zoom I don't know exactly what I was using but we were doing some screen sharing so that Mm -hmm. they you know they could see my screen or I could see theirs and but you're still you know you're not seeing each other 
on a, with a video camera, you'd just be talking on the phone at the same time. And then uh, did some recordings as well. So we started to record, you know, I would record a training video for how to model a file in Hot 2000 or how to do this or that uh, kind of thing. There was a lot of new, at the time they brought in a lot of new softwares and uh, on, um, what are they called, like, uh, you know, like customer management systems online. Right. And, and so I had right. to train people to use that and things like that. It's amazing how it's changed over the last 10 years, right? Like I can't yeah. even, like when we started and we were doing that, we had, we were really in the the first round of, we were using the, the original version of the um, the course authoring tool we use okay. currently, which is at that, initially was kind of like PowerPoint on steroids and now it's something completely different of, you know, of itself, but um crazy changes in the, in the last decade in terms of the technology that's available, which I think is a really good thing for us here in Canada because we can now offer so much more training to in our field, which is notorious for not having, you know, some, well, let's say sporadic training opportunities, yeah. um, but they're, you know, focused in urban, uh, urban regions where there's a larger uh, audience, but we need to have people trained up all across the, the country. So being able to, to take what you and I and, and others have done over the, the last 10 years and, and actually start to push that forward and yeah and well, put I'm, that I'm out into what you guys have done well thank you yeah so i think i'm like i'm really excited about the next few years i think that there's lots of opportunity to do some really fantastic work um and really make some significant changes in how people in the industry perceive building science and the importance of it yeah well you guys have done very well to position yourself you know, right on the leading edge of that. Because there's only going to be more uh, virtual training. and, and Yeah, you know, it's, it's one of those double-edged swords. It's like, well, we thought 10 years ago this was a great idea, but nobody else was like, yeah, no, we don't, <laughs> we don't do <laughs> online training. It's like, oh, that's because you don't, like, because you just don't do it because you don't have it. <laughs> so, right, so, yeah, it's like, it. yeah, so, you know, being a little bit ahead of the curve is a is a bit of a mixed blessing. There's either you know there was no income for a while, and and now we're we're in in decent shape. <laughs> um, good thing I'm passionate about this work. <laughs> yeah, well that's important in in any job, right? If you're not if you're not passionate and enjoying what you're doing, then it it, it shows. And I want to talk more about your passion and because I know that you are very passionate about this because we have spent, like I said, we spent a whole, I don't know, hour long bus ride talking about building science. Yeah. Um, I want to tell me about your work as a project manager at Building Knowledge. Well, um, a lot of a lot of my passion for my work is the same as it used to be. Um, It comes, you know, it comes from my my uh my mind being expanded in university i guess with all the different types of courses i was taking and just you know discussions with your peers um started thinking more globally learning more about the world and so really really got on to you know the environmental crisis 
uh, back then climate change was was or you know global warming was kind of starting to to be talked about more but Mm -hmm. for me and I, I came to the conclusion fairly soon and I still kind of hold to that to this day is you know whether you believe in climate change or global warming whatever um it just seems like a fundamental thing you want to have clean air clean water you know good healthy food who doesn't want that who wants to mm-hmm. live in a world that's you know dirty and polluted yeah so, yeah so i wanted to just jump in and ask what when you went to university what kind of a program did you do well i studied uh biological engineering at the university of guelph so it's quite unrelated to what i've done since then mm-hmm. but interesting it was, you know, it was kind of, um, I guess at the time I wasn't really mature enough or I didn't have the right advice to think about, you know, what I want to do for a career. So it was sort of like academically, what do I enjoy, which coming out of high school was was biology and math, like my, my two, you know, good subjects. I enjoyed them. So that's just sort of the direction I took. And then just, and, and how did you go from bioengineering to and make the leap over to um, energy efficiency? Yeah, good question. It's it's quite a quite a difference. Well, about halfway through, so maybe second or third year university, I, you know, I sort of realized that mm, I saw you get to see more about, you know, older uh, students that are going on to work, you know, co-op placements, or you learn more mm-hmm. about the type of jobs that are involved in this. And there's kind of two streams. It was either biomedical, which was fairly interesting, or it was almost like um, uh, like kind of like biochemical engineering in the food industry or pharmaceuticals, those kind of things. And it just really piqued my interest. And, you know, the more I was thinking about the world globally, I was more interested in kind of how, how to help the, help the planet. Mm-hmm. And that really got me interested in renewable energy because I saw that as the natural you know, way, well, you know, why are we using all these polluting things when we could use, you know, electric cars? We don't have to burn fossil mm-hmm. fuels. We could have more uh, wind and solar power. So why are we not doing that? So reading more about that and, um, you know, f- following some of the some of the leaders. But back then it was, <laughs> so, sorry to date myself a little bit, but, you know, I think I got my, we barely used our email in first and second year university. <laughs> I think they gave us one, but we barely even used it. So uh, I was mostly just reading books back then and talking to people about it. And that's so, how I came to it as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think university is really good for that. I would encourage people to go to college or university and just meet with different people, get different viewpoints. Yeah. Oh, um, absolutely. So, um, the, so yeah. So there, I was kind of thinking, okay, renewable energy, that's what I want to go into. And the fact that I had an engineer or I would have an engineering degree, you know, was I I thought that would be enough, you know. Mm -hmm. Okay, I have a degree. Um, You know, it's not maybe in the field I want to work in, but so out of university, it was tough time. I I could not find a job in renewable energy. This would have been back in 2002 and three. There wasn't a lot of jobs. I think I'm sure there's more now. Not really in that industry. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, one of the jobs I applied for was with uh, that nonprofit service organization in Ottawa and must have came across. I, 
I don't even remember how I came across jobs back then. I think it was, I think it was online or I, I did a lot of cold calling too. Uh-huh. I was living out west actually and I was with cold calling companies. And mailing resumes with cover, cover yeah. letters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Personalizing each cover letter and. Yep. So, th- so then you, so you, you ended up with this nonprofit service organization and, um, and that's basically been the role you've been on since. Pretty much. Yeah. They, and, you know, they basically hired me. He said, I see you don't have any experience in energy efficiency, but, you know, you're, you're an engineering graduate and I, you know, I know that you could do this stuff kind of thing. Like you, you, you put in the work, you put in the effort, you know, you right. recognize that I was willing to learn and, and interested. So. Well, and the cool thing about coming out of an engineering program is that you, they, like, regardless of which engineering program, you still have a level of rigor that you, you understand needs to be applied to any given topic or subject. Yeah, there's an underlying uh, knowledge level of, uh, you know, problem. A lot of it is problem solving, uh, right, which is good for mm-hmm. most, most employers. Uh, yeah, underlying level of math and, and uh, spreadsheets and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I th- it's really interesting that I, I feel like people who are in our industry are, you know, like the most of the long-time EAs who love their work are really fantastic problem solvers. Hmm. Like there's a there's a, a a sharp level of curiosity. Yeah, curiosity is part of it in that that quest for new knowledge, you know, and that, that relates to how I got into the training, like I mentioned before, right? It's just mm-hmm. something new to try. Okay, a new software, yeah, that's interesting. A new um, new role, whatever it is, keeping that curiosity. Mm-hmm. And I know that uh, Building Knowledge um, does a lot of work with new construction. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to ask you about how you folks go about helping to build energy efficient homes with the Ontario building code or right. within the building code. So walk me through the process. Well, uh, yeah, we do a lot of different types of projects. Uh, personally, I'm involved in lots of different ones. Um, our Ontario building code work a lot of it is um, code compliance. So a home builder, um, well, the Ontario Building Code has different pathways. Mm-hmm. Um, they have, you know, they have a prescriptive pathway with uh, six packages, I think. And That's the prescriptive being thou shalt do yes. this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And even in that, it's, it's pretty good. They give you six different options, right? Mm-hmm. Package one mm-hmm. has this amount of attic insulation and this amount of this efficiency furnace. Package right. two maybe has less attic insulation, but a higher efficiency furnace to to compensate, so to speak, to keep them all at a, a certain energy performance. So this yeah. is like, I really like this. This piece is, is good for builders who are getting moving forward. Um, but don't maybe have the the background or the building science piece to make a bunch of decisions themselves. So yeah. it's for I when people ask me about how do you describe 
to describe the prescriptive package, I would say it's, it's kind of like going to a builder who does a turnkey job and your choices become what kind of finishes you want hmm. and what kind of, uh, you know, the siding color. Like you're not making those fundamental decisions about the structure of the building or, um, you know, the the more technical aspects of it. So this allows you to actually become code compliant without having to do all the uh, yeah the background work behind that. Yeah, and it's it's um, yeah like a pick list with different options and substitutions. Mm-hmm. And I think they they might have done it for you know to give and and I don't know the history to be honest. Um, more of my colleagues have been involved in, in code committees and things like that. But I'm guessing they did it because their builders were not happy with the options they had. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So they gave them different options. And yeah. And I know that when it first started, when we first got into it, there was way more than six prescriptive packages. I can't remember how many I, we had in Nova Scotia, our energy efficiency measures were, uh, just uh, straight up in the, uh, the, either prescriptive from the national building code yeah. or hit on the old, the old, uh, system rating hit ERS 80. Yeah. That's how you become, that's how you pass. And, um, so coming out of Nova Scotia and doing so, I did a bunch of focus groups across the country at around that same time. And, uh, to, to look at getting to net zero, which is how I under, got to know more about the <clears throat> Ontario building code. And I mean, I'm in the industry and I could, get, <laughs> I was looking at these charts going, holy cranoli. <laughs> how do you, mm. how do you figure out? Like, I'll just put my finger on one of them. It doesn't, you know, yeah. I yeah. don't know which one to choose because there, and there were quite a few of them and there was like, well, if you did this, you could do that. And like the trade-offs were, almost as mind-boggling as just going to the performance path where you make up your own yeah, package. And, and that's that's basically where most of our expertise lies, is is helping our builder clients navigate that. And mm-hmm. the performance path is is another option. So you don't have to follow the packages. You can go the energy performance path. And essentially, that does two things. It just it allows you to keep the same performance while picking and choosing pretty much whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and can, so it kind of makes it easier for the builder. Um, and as long as you, as long as you maintain the same or, you know, the same or better level of performance. And so that's right. really where we come in, where we offer different options to builders. We can use what we've learned working with some while working with others. Um, another big one in Ontario is, <laughs> The uh, and the Ontario Building Code is drain water, water heat recovery uh, units, and that is in all the prescriptive packages. But in the performance, you don't have to do it. You can right. take it out and, and do the energy model to show that the house still meets code. Right, and the reason you might might not want to have or might not be able to take advantage of the packages is if maybe you're slab on grade and you're not able. To to take advantage of the drain water heat recovery unit. Yeah, there. Well, there's actually an exception that says slab on grade does not require. Oh, okay. It. And I think, yeah, like if you have a if you don't have a shower on the second story, as well, you don't have to do it. So, so tell me about 
like the range of your of building knowledge clients. Oh wow, mm-hmm. there's quite a range, um, and you know, luckily for me, my uh, with my experience level, I guess uh, I'm able to work with a lot of different types of clients. So that's that's what's pretty neat about this position. Uh, do, do you have a favorite? Do you have a favorite client type? Like, is it uh, like? <laughs> I mean, and I'm not trying to pinpoint a client. I'm more more thinking like, like, like you can you know what you can have different impacts, right? If you're working with a big track builder or a medium sized yeah. builder or a small custom builder. I you know what I don't really have a specific client type. Um, it's more the individual person I'm working with. Um, so obviously, you know, you you kind of just get along better with other people, or or you kind of see. It's definitely more enjoyable working with clients that are, you know, they're on the same. Yeah, enthusiastic or or interested, you know, interested in learning, uh, in on this on the same wavelength, kind of. Mm-hmm. Like they're not just because you know, there are some clients, you know, tell me what I need to do to get this grant, or tell me what I need to do to meet code, and then you never hear from them again. Whatever it is. Right. So so they're they're. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah. But there are some clients that are, you know, oh, this is interesting. I want, you know, I want to explore this part of the building code. Uh, you, you know, they give you feedback on the work you've done. Say, well, this was really good. Or can we improve on that? It's just more of a back and forth kind of relationship and less less about just selling a product, I guess. Mm-hmm. And are you finding that, are you using the CBAT tool at all, which is the uh, cost analysis tool from Enercan? Um, we are a little bit. Yeah. We um, we haven't got that many builder clients interested in it. We've more been using it on uh, some of the other type of projects because, I mean, more than just builders, we work with um, corporate clients and we work with government uh, departments, provincial, federal, uh, sometimes municipal too. So it would be more clients like that, I think, that are looking mm-hmm. at larger, kind of larger scope projects or ideas where they want that level of analysis. Right. I was just asking because the, the CBAT is a really great way to actually, or, you know, having a tool like that where you can actually add the cost analysis in it would make it a lot more interesting to look at those, um, the, the, the packages for prescriptive. Yes, as well, right? So, yeah. so the cost, the cost factor is also in, involved in there, and in, in yeah, not just of, energy. Well, yeah, and not just or, oh, but I really like to use ICF. Yes, that kind of thing. So, because we found, and I know that when we were doing the beta testing on on the tool, um, that there were some really surprising cost-effective things that you know people were like, oh, that's that's too expensive to do. Um, but being able to run several different packages together and compare them with, you know, the same costing data um, was really great. And just, you know, I've always like done that kind of work on a spreadsheet, but to have a tool where you don't have to think too much to <laughs> about mm-hmm. your about all of the inputs was is fantastic. So I'm looking forward to that coming. Yeah. Yeah. There, there is a version of CBAT out there, um, but I know recently um, we were just working 
with uh, some of the team at Intercan or CanNet actually right. uh, talking to them about it. They are very close to releasing completely revamped version. I guess they they had some been working with uh, some Excel programmers and getting it more durable. Uh, oh, good, because that was crashing there custom. for a while. Well, it's uh, wasn't really crashing. It was just very specific. In, in the the data you had to import into it had to be a very specific way, and that had to be created a very specific way, and mm, it I was see. not it was not like an easy process really. Mm-hmm. Right, right. I was just more focused when I've I've been using it for qu- quite a while in terms of just being able to grab costing data that's in right that's reasonable it. shape so that I can just go across yeah. the board because it's it's got a really great library of, of of data for a lot of different uh, assemblies and approaches that yeah. includes both materials and labor prices and the cool thing is that what we found out is that you know I'm sitting here in, in Vancouver right now but I work typically in Nova Scotia and in Vancouver uh, there's lower material prices higher labor costs in Nova Scotia it's the opposite. So the costing data still works. Yes. Yeah. So that's yeah, um, you have the, your regional costing data, or really where it's powerful is um, builders, you know, can import their, they can put their own costs in there, mm-hmm. specific yeah. to to them if they want, and then run different scenarios. And, yeah, I'm really looking forward to more of that. Yeah, I hope so. I hope it becomes more widely used and widely adopted it there's a bit of a learning curve there for for typical for some of our clients um, but some of the more engaged ones i think uh, i've been using it a little bit cool so next question what's the most complex project you've ever worked on oh the most complex project i probably wiped it from my memory because <laughs> Nightmares. <laughs> no, um, no, not that. I'll give you one. It was a, it was an interesting one, and it was a really, really good learning experience. So, when I was working uh, back in Ottawa, so working with an engineer on staff, and uh, and then another one, well, another engineer worked for a different company, was, was sort of mentoring us. And we started doing commercial projects, which was really neat, including um, a lot of churches. There was an organization there, an- another nonprofit that had some funding to do energy assessments on churches. So mm-hmm. we did a number of churches in the Ottawa area, which was really interesting. Is that working with Steve Collette? Uh, he does a lot of work. He does a lot of work with churches these days. I don't know if that was you, okay. That yes. Uh, well, he wasn't around at the time, but I think it's the same organization. Yes, I remember having a conversation with him once when actually when I met him at spring camp. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we do. It was the group was called Faith in the Common Good, and I'm not even sure if they're still around, to be honest. But uh, yeah, I think he works with them, too, or has. Yeah, cool. So so what were you doing with the churches? Oh, we were doing uh, straight on energy audits. So. A lot like a lot like an energy guide assessment, but 
in some cases you had to use different energy modeling tools and we were mm-hmm. looking at their uh, their actual bills as well so it's interesting is you know the energide assessment which is not really an, a true energy audit that's why they call it an assessment mm-hmm. um, doesn't take some of those things into account so with the full-on energy audit you actually take the utility bills and then you use that information to try to um, improve the energy model so that it mm-hmm. better represents the actual consumption. Uh, so you kind of, you know, tweak it to look at the result. Like you can learn a lot from the bills. Actually, it's surprising. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can go you know, summertime, you know, in a typical house with the gas water heater, your, you know, your summertime gas usage, that's your hot water energy right there. Right. And right. And then, and then you can, the year and, and then in an all electric house, you can also parse it out. Um, so you know what your, your heating bill is. Yeah, we use, because I work mainly in, in, in retrofits, anytime we can have bills. Mm-hmm. We're, you know, the more, the more years of bills, the better. Um, so we can actually, you know, map them against, um, actual weather, you know, the, the yearly weather pattern, like the actual annual weather pattern as opposed to yes. the average. Um, yeah. And say, oh, here's why you had a big jump here is because we yeah. had, you know, a series of days of really, you know, double digit yeah. below zero. It's a lot yeah. of really good information for the for the client that you can't yeah. really get just from an energy assessment. But it, yeah, it is and more I think involved that, and takes more time. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, do you know, um, did you do any... Um, uh, PV arrays or any anything like that for roofs on the churches? Or was that um, outside of the scope? No, I don't remember. Back then, there was no one really, not a lot of people had PV. Yeah, because I was one of the very uh, many years ago. I was at a uh, helped host a conference in Nova Scotia, um, and we had as the keynote speaker, the keynote speaker whose name I cannot remember. Um, was one of the key people in getting the sacramental, sacramental, (laughs) no, try again, the sacramento, no, sacramento Sacramento. municipal utility district, SMUD, as is is commonly known, um, to, um, they went to the churches and said, as part of your stewardship, you should Mm -hmm. be putting PV on your roof. Because your building has, you know, these buildings, the churches have large roofs. And, yeah. um, and the first one he got to buy in, I think, was like an Ang- Anglican church. But then the Catholic church down the road went, oh, hey, wait a minute. And so <laughs> the, the, that whole uh, utility uh, area was one of the first places that actually had significant uh, PV rooftop systems that fed into a municipal utility district. Yeah, and I'm I'm kind of realizing I'm I'm glad we talked a little bit more about the churches because I was actually leading towards the we did an audit for the Algonquin uh, Algonquin Art Gallery, which is in Algonquin Park, Ontario, and uh, it was it was a very complicated. That's just what I remember. So on the technical side, but it was a complicated heating and cooling system. It was they so they had boilers that were 
heating, hot water. I think propane boilers. Yeah, it must have been propane. Heating hot water. And then they all, then they had heat pumps to take that heated hot water and turn it into space heat. So there was like two levels of heating mm-hmm. on the equipment. And I, I've heard a little bit more about it recently. Um, it, it's, it's sort of common, but it's, uh, it was very complicated for me at the time. <laughs> I got my head well, around that. Like, why are they heating hot water and then using a heat pump to... As opposed to a fan that? coil. Well, no, they had fan coils. They had these multiples, oh, I can't remember, multiple heat pumps around the building with fan coils on them. That Yeah, you're right, in, instead, of a, instead of a fan coil. It must have been because, I'm guessing because the propane was a system that reduced your propane costs. You didn't have to heat it right to the temperature. Uh, the heat pump would right. bring it up an extra little bit because it's right. in oh, a park. It's, it is on a highway, but maybe the cost of propane or something. Yeah, yeah. No, that would make sense because propane is lower in energy too than natural gas. Okay. Yeah, and yeah, you would be trucking it all in there. Mm -hmm. There was no, there's no gas lines. So, pretty innovative solution then. Possibly, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's another just uh, to to go off on a tan another tangent. There's um, I know there's a couple of other companies doing this, but there is a company in Newfoundland called. Therm Atlantic, and they have created a system that would work for a small MERB, so not not small enough for a single family house yet. Um, hopefully that can happen. But they actually have what they call a cascading heat pump technology. So they do air to water heat pump on the uh, for stage one, okay, and and that brings the the the, the energy in, uh, into the water, heats the water. But we know that that doesn't heat it up to the right temperature for a boiler-driven um, mm-hmm. system for delivering space heating. Um, and then they move it through another water-to-water heat pump and superheat the water, so we actually it actually gets to um, to the right temperatures for the um, for delivery. This and, is a package unit then? Yeah, it's a package okay. unit and they have put it they've put it into I think there's five between five and seven new builds in uh Halifax that have the system in them and they're all like you know, three story to five story um MERBs, so they're Yeah. It's pretty interesting technology. It is. I think the key for that is they would have to package it because that's comes to mind with this, this system I was talking about or a system like that is it gets overly comp. It sounds so complicated, yeah. and I think it is yeah. complicated. So to design and build that, and then you know, the more complicated you make something, the more problems you're you're going to have. The more sorry, yeah. the more the more things that can go wrong. Well, especially if you don't have somebody who's around to service things. So that this is yeah. like really, you know, what they're doing the is is standard. This is all standard off-the-shelf technology there's nothing special what's special about it is how they're controlling it yes and and so that that controller um you know that the control system is what an operator needs to understand and it's not i mean i'm not a, i'm obviously not a facilities manager but from the sort of the you know from me looking at it going oh i can understand this i think it would probably be fairly easy for a facilities manager to actually get the controls but they definitely need to understand what's happening in the building too, right? So now we're back to science. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's uh, 
there's the good news is there's lots of technologies, there's lots of solutions for any of these environmental problems. You know, I've, even back in my university days, I was reading about the solutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, just got to get them implemented and you've got to get uh, everybody on board with it, basically. Right. And then that's a nice segue into my next question, which is about, you know, getting people on board. And we know that we have a shortage in trades and mm-hmm. uh, and we need to have more energy advisors in the field to support code related issues and and um, program related requirements. So how do we make this profession known and more desirable and you know, with a, a good career path? Go. You yeah. have two minutes to answer. No. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is I don't have all the solutions. Um, you know, I, I've identified the problem. I've seen it pretty much my whole career. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I have ideas. Uh, knowledge is a big part of it, and that really does is part of the backbone of building knowledge. And I think that's why our company has been successful. The, the president, Gord Cook, and the VP, Andy Oding, you know, they they demonstrate that every day with their high level mm-hmm. of knowledge and the training that we do for our clients or whomever is, is interested in listening, really. Um, we just want to get that information out there so that, you know, we can raise everybody up to a certain level of understanding and demystify some of the some of the myths. Right. Right. Like, right. Like, and that's uh, uh, HVAC installer about- would say about that system, maybe, you know, oh, it's so complicated to fix because we're used to doing, you know, gas boilers and that's all we do, mm-hmm. that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I really definitely know that, you know, what we're doing with Blue House and, and, and what Building Knowledge is doing, we're totally aligned because we're all about the why. You need to understand the why yeah. and then you'll get the bigger picture. Yeah. And so, you know, trades training is is a big part of it. Um, I mean, I'll be honest, the I guess the political side of me coming out a little bit. I, I'd like to see higher wages in in those professions mm-hmm. and and more opportunities for careers, and not just you know hire whoever they can for the the cheapest labor kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so that would be that would be really nice to see. Is there? I know there is. There's been a shortage of trades, like since I graduated high school. Mm-hmm. People were telling yeah. me that, oh, go be a plumber, go be an electrician. There's lots of work. Yeah, and now it's just it, it, we're at the crunch point because all those people who are the buffer, in terms of, you know, the hundred thousand people who are, we're going to be short that many people, hundred thousand people in the trades, um, within the next five years or so. As a retirement, but and stuff. as retirement, yeah. So that whole buffer of people who had experience who could. Tr- train up people mm. in the field or as apprentices a formal apprentices we're losing all of those people to retirement and yeah. it's very interesting because uh i don't know if you know charles Zalim. he I used to work know. with Enercan, and then uh, he's, uh, he was with ottawa hydro and i kind of lost touch with him um over the last few years we observed something very interesting so he and i are about the same age but there's like a 20-year gap between Charles and I, and like uh, the sort of the, you know ten to twenty years between us and um, Tex McLeod and you know Gord Cook and, and right. that group of folks, 
And then there's another 10 to 20 year gap between us and like you, for example, because I graduated high school in 1980. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and so what we, we have these holes in between like generational holes and yeah. that's a gap that's going to be really, really hard to, um, to cover. Yeah. And because of the nature of a big part of our industry, we've probably talked about this on the podcast before being dependent on incentives from governments that causes mm-hmm. that whole, another kind of generational thing. Whenever program right. stop, stops, you know, 80% of that knowledge is lost when people have to go off and find new jobs. Right. And we, and, you know, we lose that. And also we lose that expertise to the States. I remember Don Fugler, who was with Mm -hmm. CMHC, um, had a conversation with Sam Rashkin several years ago because there used to be an organization called Affordable Comfort Institute, which has morphed into, I think it's Building Professionals Association now. ACI would have all sorts of Canadians go down and do presentations at their big conference, which was, you know, several thousand people in the industry in the States. And Sam said to to Don at one point, you know, it's kind of cool. You guys do all the technical stuff. You're excellent at the technical stuff. And you bring it down here and you give it to us. And then we build up Energy Star for new homes and sell it back to you. We're really good at marketing in the u.s <laughs> it's like a yeah. and that's what's you know that that sort of like basically exporting all of our expertise and people you know who were in the industry when the the eco energy program went down as a ton of people went stateside i, did, I didn't know that actually I, I know it happens sometimes but i i guess i don't know anyone personally that's done that well I, there was something like um, when the eco energy program was at its peak, we had about 2,500 energy advisors in the field. Yeah. And a lot of those people left, you know, obviously left for different jobs in different industries, but a bunch of folks went down into the U.S. because there's a seriously, you know, there's a good, strong, continually funded weatherization program. Yeah. At the federal level. And then that, and that feeds state level weatherization programs. So that there's actually a solid weatherization industry in the U.S. and in Canada, we might call that like air sealing and inter- insulation industry. Yeah, and that's that's the problem is there hasn't been an industry really here, not in existing homes. I think in new homes, it, it's it's happened more. Um, well, yes, but just because code's there, but right. Um, but with yeah, with retrofits, it's really it's a huge challenge, and it's a real you know it's a real sad thing to see that go uh, up and down on a cyclical basis because of funding. Um, you know, we could we could dive into a whole bunch of really good things about that, but maybe we might we'll run wait. out of time. We'll run out of time. Um, so maybe that's another episode where we just talk about. Yeah, that would be, I would be, uh, I would be, because I have, I have started to to write kind of a a white paper on that, actually, kind of how to design the the best retrofit program. Oh, well, let's let's collaborate on that, because I got some ideas, too. Yeah, if you had a, uh, well, just a thought, might be, 
interesting to have a panel or something like that, right? And just brainstorm yeah. ideas. Um, yeah. Because it's, no, I think that's you need a to great establish idea. A, a market, a market for it, not just a subsidy but, program. But the, yeah, but the crazy thing is there is a market there. The subsidy programs have driven the market, but they're driving it in these really weird ways where mm. everybody gets an assessment done and then they go, so who can do the work? And there's nobody to do the work. Yep. Yep. It's so the whole the whole picture. So outside of all of these kind of thoughts and and your 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 passion in, in building science and energy efficiency, what do you do for fun? I mean I know this is fun, <laughs> but what do you do for fun outside of this world? Well, mostly family time. I've got uh I've got three boys and I've got Two dogs. That sounds like fun. <laughs> it's it's fun. getting better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They're older now, so it is it is much more fun, less work. Um, and recently, I've got a, a wonderful wife as well who started working more and more. Uh, so life is always busy, and we have also uh, acquired some chickens this summer. That was sort of our COVID summer two project was. <laughs> so I do lots of stuff outside. So I built a chicken coop, and then now we have some chickens in our backyard. Nice. Chickens are very fun to watch. <laughs> they are, actually. Yeah, they're fairly calming. They're, yeah. Right? They just kind of and, walk around. And, 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 and comical. Yes. Like, I find them very comical. Yeah. I was actually just watching one stand by the coop trying to get – I put a door with a window one section, but then another area is where they usually come in and out. So it's standing looking at the window for like five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> let me in. Let me in. <laughs> oh, man, that's great. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Toby. I really appreciate it. And that's it for our episode today. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Jonna. Thank you for tuning in. This episode was produced by Blue House Energy, Podcast Atlantic, and Tanya Media. Subscribe and don't miss an episode. Leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time.